Well, good morning, everyone. So to begin our time together today, we are going to read from Matthew 5. So you can go ahead and turn there with me if you'd like to. I'm going to begin in verse 3 and read through 12. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you falsely, saying every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecute the prophets who were before you. Thanks, Ellie. Good morning again, everyone. Sometimes I settle in over here and I forget that I have to get up in front of you guys. And it's it like it's a shock. It's like, oh, there's people in this room I have to share with this morning. Um, stay in Matthew chapter 5. That's actually where we're going to be this morning as we begin uh, the new year with just taking a focused look at one small section that's a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, basically what we're going to look at this morning, you could summarize as uh, a life that's shaped by the Beatitudes. And that's why I wanted Ellie to read uh, the Beatitudes as we began our time in the scriptures this morning, because the, the teaching that Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with is the Beatitudes. And then he carries right into what we're going to talk about this morning. And so as we look at this, following the eight Beatitudes, we have the natural transition of hearts being shaped by the teachings of Jesus to the overflowing of his goodness into our church community, but not just there, that continues to overflow, stemming from the change inside of our hearts and our lives into the world around us. So the Beatitudes is a life that's shaped by Christ. When you look at the Beatitudes, you'll notice that how, how many of the Beatitudes talk about people who are humble, who are meek and lowly, who are poor, and God says, these are the people that I bless, the people who come to me and recognize how much they lack, the people who come to me and are willing to say, I'm a mess and I need your help. And he says, you're blessed. I'm going to use you. And we know this because we've read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, I use the weak things of the world to confound the wise. Yet in so many ways, we're looking for God to make us strong so that he can better use us when in actuality, he wants us to remain in that place of humble submission and obedience to him, and a lot of times, in order for us to stay humble, well, think of it this way. If I'm going to remain humble, that means I have to be put in my proper place. It's never fun getting put in your place, is it? It's never, we, re we remember this as a kid. When our parents put us in our place, it was always a very humbling experience. Well, oftentimes, God is a good father, will put us in our proper place, and that humility will always make us feel weak. Humility and weakness go together because it recognizes that I am not sufficient for all the things that I need to accomplish in this life. However, God is. So to begin, consider the following with me. I think that when we look at the Beatitudes and as we go into what we're going to talk about this morning, that being salt and light, that we need to remember what worship is. 
And, and I recognize that I do this a lot as a musician who loves playing worship music. When we talk about it in the church setting, we say, okay, it's time for worship. What do you think? Probably not a banjo, but you know what I'm talking about. Like you're thinking like, here comes the, the music, right? Because it's time for worship. But what is worship in its true meaning? Well, Harold Best says it really well. He wrote a book called Unceasing Worship. It's a wonderful book. And he says this, Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. He's defining it generally, and then he defines it better later as he looks at the true God. But he says, this is what worship is. It's not really singing songs, is it? Although that's a part of it. It's not playing an instrument, although that's a part of it. Worship is everything that we are. It's a continuous outpouring of all that we are and all that we do. And so when you go to McDonald's and order a Big Mac, you are worshiping. You're like, oh, I'm worshiping the Big Mac? Well, you might be, but hopefully not. You guys, here's, here's the point of it, is that everything that we're doing should be done as unto the Lord. And, and Scripture supports this. Because when you look at Scripture, Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 talks about how everything that we do should be done to the Lord. It should be done for the Lord. And when we recognize that worship is a continuous outpouring, that means that worship never stops. It means that my worship never ceases. And, and what's striking about that for me is this. When I sin, worship doesn't cease. Worship redirects. That's why sin is so heinous. That's why our sin should be taken so seriously. Because when I'm taking my worship of God and shifting it to something else, I've become an idolater. Because worship never stops, we're just shifting the direction that it's going in. Our worship of God is a heart position, and so our worship of other things means that our heart has been directed towards that person, place, or thing in God's place. So our worship of God is heart overflowing to the church and onto the world around us. And if the Beatitudes describe the essential character of disciples of Jesus, then what we're about to read this morning about being salt and light used as metaphors indicates our influence for good in the world. In other words, it says, this is how you're going to know if the Beatitudes have gotten into us heart deep. We're going to become salt and light. These are the metaphors that Jesus chooses. Now the text is worship of God in the public, the public sphere. And in a desire to seek and understand Jesus' vision for his church this year, what will the world find the church doing in 2023? That's the question that I've been thinking about all week this week. What will the world find the church doing this year? Many years have come and gone. But what will the world find us doing in this season? The Beatitudes are a wonderful place for us to begin. But they're just the beginning as they're meant to be poured out as active worship on this world. The Beatitudes are beautiful and have to be considered first, but having considered them and allowed the Lord to penetrate our hearts, what are we going to do about them? How is it going to shape the way we live? And that's what Jesus addresses next. Bear this in mind, church, as we read our text this morning. It's impossible to follow the norms of the kingdom in a purely private way. 
It is impossible, I'll say it again, to follow the norms of the kingdom of God in a purely private way. You must be living this out loud. I must be living this out loud. Who we are, according to what God has said and what he has done inside of our hearts, must be seen by the world. And for that, Jesus gives us these two examples. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. It's a short section. Jesus continues his teaching during the Sermon on the Mount by saying this. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. It's the words of our Savior. Jesus uses two very domestic metaphors to introduce a spiritual concept. He uses salt and light. Two things that we understand in our time today, but we might understand them a little bit differently than Jesus' day. Two things that no matter if you're rich or poor, every home uses. I hope. <laughs> if you don't have salt, that would be a bummer. If you don't have light, that's a dark world to live in. You guys, you could call these essential ingredients for our lives. They're practical things that we're familiar with. In fact, writing in the first century, Pliny, he was a Roman philosopher, said this. He said that there's nothing more useful than salt and sunshine. Even the secular philosophers of the Greek world would agree and say, you know what? Um, these two things are essential. You need salt and sunshine. Now, what's interesting about this is while salt is known to us as more of a seasoning for food in our culture or here in the inland Northwest to get the fro freezing rain off the sidewalks, especially on Christmas Eve, um, in the ancient world, it was used a little bit differently. They didn't really have refrigerators, Right? You didn't have refrigeration in the ancient days. And so if you wanted to preserve meat or food, what would you put in it? Salt, because salt's a preservative. Salt was used to prevent meat from decaying. It was a preservative. It's a purifier. And this is a clear separation when you think about what Jesus is trying to teach with a very practical thing, but he's using it as a metaphor. There's a clear separation between the church and and the culture of the world. Not in proximity, but in lifestyle. The world is in a state of decay. It's like a rotting piece of flesh. If you've been around rotting flesh, it's not a pretty sight nor a pretty smell. This world is decaying because of sin. Jesus has called his church to put a halt to that decay. To put that decay, if nothing else, on delay. Now think about this, as a delay to the process to purify what it, wherever he sends his salt, RVG Tasker puts it this way, the disciples of Jesus are to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent. That was not written recently. And how much does that pertain to what we see today? How relevant is it that we live in a world that morally speaking, the standards are not only low, but they're shifting so quickly we can't even keep up with it. 
We can't even keep up with what's happening morally in the world. And in some places, there's no morality. It's non-existent. Truth is relative. Church, we're not called the sugar of the earth. I'm sorry. I'm not going to call you guys sugar. But we are called to be salt. We're not called to be the sweetener of this world. We're called to be the stay against decay. We're called to be something that purifies. God didn't call us to be soothing when it comes to the morality of the world that we live in. He called us to be salt. You ever get salt in a wound? You'll remember it if you do. It's like lemon juice. It goes right to work. It feels terrible. It's like that back teen. Whew. I never knew that I could like hear colors, but when that got sprayed on my scrapes, I could hear colors. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Guys, but if salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? They understood even in the ancient days, of course, that salt also has a taste to it. There's a salty taste. You know the difference when your friend fills your sugar container with salt unless you pour it into your coffee? It's very different than sugar. It's no longer good for anything when it loses its saltiness, Jesus says. It's not good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Something interesting about salt, sodium chloride. I love chemistry, by the way. It's a very stable chemical compound. Sodium chloride is very stable. It's not an unstable thing. It's resistant to nearly every attack. However, it can become contaminated by mixing it with impurities. You can mix it with things and contaminate it fairly easily. And when it becomes useless, it's borderline dangerous. When it's contaminated by other things. When it's mixed with impurities. Now in the Roman world, what couldn't be used was thrown into the road and literally trampled under people's feet. What couldn't be used would be thrown out the door into the road. And so when Jesus says this, he says, don't be salt like that. Don't be salt that's lost its taste so that it's thrown out and discarded and is of no use whatsoever. It's impure. So you see, church, when we're tainted by compromise, by sin, we leave off being those who are called to be a message of salvation and saving to society. And instead, we become supply material for footpaths. Interestingly enough, Salt spread across the ground is only good for killing vegetation. This is the fatal effect of an unrighteous disciple's lifestyle. Let us all feel that conviction together. When we do not live righteously before the Lord, we become something that is dangerous and that kills healthy growth. We can't be this. Jesus sent us to do what? Be salt that gets thrown out and kills vegetation or to bear fruit and much fruit. You can't do that if we're being tossed outside full of impurity. Salt that fulfills its purpose, purifies and preserves and we're the salt of the earth and Jesus makes this really clear. And I think that we need to hold on to this and remember it, especially going into a new year. The church needs to remember that our walk with the Lord needs to be constantly purified by our, by our humble submission, confession, repentance, and recognition that we need His grace. We need to be saved from our sin. Jesus uses another one. 
Verse 14 of chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket unless you want to start the basket on fire. But rather on a lampstand, he says, and then it'll give light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Notice the purpose of letting the light be seen is to give glory to God. In John chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. When he says you are the light of the world, he's saying you are reflecting who I am. You are showing the world what Jesus looks like. In our daily lives, are we showing the world what Jesus looks like? What he would say, what he would do, how he would conduct himself in our time. The second metaphor associates with this attribute of Jesus and that he is the source of light and that we become the light of the world when we walk in his way. The Lord's statement in John 8 is fulfillment of the ministry of the Messiah. It was foretold in Isaiah 49. Verses 5 and 6, it says this, And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones from Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Who has Jesus entrusted that work to right now? to the light of the world. That's why Jesus can look at his people, his church, and say, my church, my body, you guys who are in Christ Jesus are the light of the world. He says, my light is shining through you to this world. How many of us are uh, opting for the basket? How many of us are shining on the lampstand and providing light for the whole house? Guys, this should be conviction for us because so often I look at my light that the Lord has given to me by the power of his Holy Spirit and it's under a couple really heavy blankets hidden away because I'm too focused on what I want. I'm too focused on what I think I need in that moment. I'm not focused on what he is doing in this world and what he's called me to do. We are in this together. We're doing this work together as his people. This isn't just for one or two or three of us. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are called to be the light of the world. The ministry of Jesus must be deep-rooted within his disciples, and our calling as disciples of Christ is to shine. And not only to shine, but shine his light and not our own. This is an important distinction. Because a lot of times I think that we have bought into a Christian culture that shines personal light. Our desires, maybe we like to shine our skills, our abilities, rather than drawing that attention to Christ. In these cases, we're putting His light under a basket and we're trying to light our own flame. Maybe worship has actually diverted again. Maybe I'm not actually worshiping the Lord with what I'm doing. Maybe I'm trying to get attention for myself or gain followers for myself. And in a world that lives on that dopamine hit of likes or even loves, 
or even laughing faces. Boy, how much have we started to live for that? John Stott said it really well. He said, if salt can lose its saltiness, the light in us can become darkness. He says, don't lose your saltiness. And he says, let your light shine and bring glory to God. If we're not doing that, then we've let the light that the Lord has placed inside of us become dim. Submission and obedience to Christ is going to set us on this hill where we shine bright for all to see. And this may not be as glorious as it sounds. It's interesting. I think a lot of times we think about shining. We think about being an example like we should be. We, we may think of standing up in a way that just demonstrates the goodness of God for all to see. Do you see? How often does the Lord glorify himself through our pain? Isn't that how God glorified himself in his son? Through our pain, through our struggle, through our brokenness, through the bad situations. You know, mom and dad used to say it all the time, and I didn't want to listen then, and now I just tell it to my kids. I still don't want to listen to it for myself. But, you know, you don't build character by getting everything you want. Allow me to be dad for a second. You don't build character. And I'm saying this to me as well by getting what we want. We build character by letting his light shine through the cracks. Isn't it interesting that God doesn't look at his people and say, you are a tower. Power. Right? Like, look at you. Oh, my goodness. Right? God's not like, wow, so powerful. Hard to believe that I'm God and you're not. You're like, that sounds borderline blasphemous. It should. That's why I said it. In fact, Scripture describes us in in very humbling ways like sheep. Dumb, disobedient wanderers cannot protect themselves. They can't even survive in the rain. Do you realize that? A sheep wandering around in a rainstorm that hasn't been sheared is a dead sheep. They just get filled up with water. That's all they do. There's this big puff ball. You could use as a scrubby or something. Probably smell bad. But that's what we're compared to. You're like, this doesn't make me feel very loved. Oh, but it should because he says he's the good shepherd. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who loves and cares for and leads the sheep. You're like, but that makes me feel so low. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's the point. It's who you are. You're like, I don't want to be a sheep. Can I be something else? How about a jar made out of clay? How about a jar of clay? He says, we possess the goodness of God. Paul teaches this to the Corinthian church. He says, we possess this treasure of God in clay pots. And you're like, well, that's not very sturdy stuff. Visit the ancient world. Go tour around in the Middle East and go through all the ruins and look around and tell me how good a condition the clay jars are in. There's shards everywhere in ancient cities. Why? Because it's fragile. Fragile, for those of you who... Anyway, but here's... It is. It's fragile. You guys, that's us. Fragile, frail, fussy, unable to defend ourselves, feeling good about yourself. Happy New Year! (laughs) You guys... The Lord is glorified in us. 
not when we think that we're something special and that we, we think that we can take care of this on our own. We are special because we are loved by him. We have value because our identity is in Jesus because God became a man and died on a cross in our place. We are special because of his love. We are special because of what he's done. And that is the most satisfying, peaceful, joyful place you can ever find your soul is recognizing that the God of the universe loves me despite of who I am. Despite the mess and the wreck of my life. And so in the midst of my life, I don't have to base his love for me on the situations I'm in or the amount that I've failed because he loves me based on his character, based on his goodness. You guys, it may not be as glorious as it sounds to be a light that's on a hill, a city situated on a hill that can't be hidden, a light that shines and brings light to all those in the house. It may not be as glorious as it sounds. In fact, the Lord is glorified and shines through us in obedience, not in comfort. The Lord is best seen in our lives through obedience, not our comfort. That means I can shine in both rest and struggle. It doesn't mean I have to seek out problems. You know, well, I need some trouble here because then God's going to be seen in my life. Don't do that. Trouble's coming. You know that. (laughs) Things are about to break. You guys, we can shine in both seasons of rest and seasons of struggle. If we submit ourselves to him, it's my calling to obey and entrust the unknown to him. Consider John the Baptist. John the Baptist is one of my favorite examples from the scriptures on how to honor Jesus with our lives. Jesus speaking in John chapter 5, verses 31 through 35, he says this, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, he's speaking of John the Baptist, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. He says, John was a burning, shining lamp. Yes, that crazy goat skin guy eating locusts was a burning shining light to have jesus say these things about my life that's what i want no superficiality john was on mission all the time john the baptist's entire life was spent preparing the way for jesus he preached repentance he spoke truth and love he didn't just stop at saying that jesus must increase and he himself must decrease he lived it people left john and followed jesus May every pastor remember that. May every preacher remember that. That people left John to follow Jesus. You see, we aren't people keepers as the shepherds of the church. We are those who raise up disciples that belong to Christ, that belong to the shepherd. And you know what? If they leave and they go do whatever he calls them to do, Praise God, go. And with all the strength that he can give them. Let me just shine a little light in, because I don't know how much you guys have seen this before. 
But it's really hard to pastor and not base your value on people who are in your church. It's a really difficult thing to do. To base your value, to base your effectiveness or even your godliness on the amount and the health of the people in your church. That's unfair to you. That's unfair to you. And if I've done that to you guys, I want to apologize for that. And when I've been weak and when I've had a lack of humility and a lack of understanding, that my value, it's, it's not decided by this group. I love you guys, but you don't get to decide where my value is. You don't get to decide my identity either, and I don't get to decide yours. You see, my value is found in Jesus Christ. There could be two people here this morning. And I could be fulfilling the ministry that he called me to by sharing with those two people. As a pastor, I make this really personal. And I, am I ready for people to leave so they can follow him fully? And my answer better be yes. Or I'm not pastoring the way I should. I'm not shepherding the way that I should. What under-shepherd would not want his people, the sheep, to be with the good shepherd, following his path for their life? Now, right now, those things are connected. We're running that, that pathway together. But may we never think that we possess something that is not ours. We're not supposed to draw people to ourselves the light that shines through us, through our good works, is not intended to make people follow us. Look at what Jesus says in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. God is to be glorified in what's happening in His church. Successful ministry for all disciples of Jesus is that the world would give glory to God. Successful ministry is not when people follow us. It's when God is glorified in his house, and in his people. If we're to be salt and light church in this world by the power of the Spirit within us, we can't do it hidden away. Not only can the salt not lose its saltiness, but the light can't be hidden. Now let me call out a local uh, stereotype. Lots of people move up here because they want to hide. Lots of people move up here because they want peace and quiet. That's why my family came up here. We wanted separation. We wanted to live our life. I was 10 years old. That was the lesson that was taught to me. We're going to leave a place that's well-dense and populated where there's lots of needs, and we're going to go somewhere where we can have space. Why? So that we don't have to be around people. Why? Because people are a pain in the butt. And you know it. You recognize it about yourself, and you're elbowing the person that you love next to you. Right? So people come up here to hide, to get away, to get separation. <laughs> My wife is laughing really hard right now. Flight into the invisible is a denial of a call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. A community that seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. And I just want to 
lay that out there for all of us to remember. The enemy wants to isolate you. He wants you to be separated from the others. Do you watch nature shows? Where's the strength of the herd? In the herd. Where's the weakness? That old one or the little ones that are off trying to keep up and they don't get them hemmed in in the middle, right? What are the ones that get picked off? They never take on the big boy. You know, the big Cape Buffalo that's like, whatever, dude. You could hit me with a bus and I wouldn't move. I've been on a, a, a little mini safari in a tiny car in Kenya. And let me tell you what, those Cape Buffalo don't move for anything. And when they look at you, I was more afraid than when the lions were around. Because I think it just put its horns in your car and flip it. There's strength in this, in, in this herd, right? But the ones that get picked off are the, the sick ones, the weak ones, the ones that wander away and don't stay with the group. The enemy wants to isolate you. That's why scripture says he's prowling around seeking for whom he may devour He's trying to get other strays to break off from the pack. He's going to take them down on the outside. Isolation leads to death. And I said this before, and Rob was the only one that laughed. It was actually really serious in the moment that I said it in the past. But like, when you find a dismembered arm in a field, that should be grotesque, not funny. Like, what? I'm going somewhere with this. Where should that arm be? If you found an arm in the middle of a field, you're just walking through a field, and you find an arm, it's like, it's never like, ooh, I can use that. That's sick. Where should that arm be? Attached to a body. Are you getting the picture? We need to be connected to each other. It's the healthy design of God for his people to be connected, working together, working through those things. Now, sometimes we're like a little klutzy toddler on ice. But we still need to figure it out, and we have Jesus as our head. Jesus is our head. He is our leader. So you guys, isolation leads to death. And I just want to remind you of this. May this be a refreshment for us as a church to remember that we need each other. We need each other. We need to work together. And that to be light and salt in this world, we do that as his body. We do it together. The moment you find the light, Spurgeon said this, and realize that the world is in the dark, run away with your match and lend somebody else a light. May that be the heart of us as a people, as a church, that we would be running away to lend the light to others and doing that as a team, functioning together. Christian, come on up here. Um, We're going to take communion this morning, church. And... My heart, by looking at this text and talking about these things, is that we would really understand how taking communion is unifying for us. It's a family meal. It's something that only believers take together. It was given to believers as a remembrance of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. There's something about taking communion that I think we've, at least in my my church background, we've taken too lightly, and I've tried to bring some more weight to taking communion. Not sadness, but weight. This is an important thing that the church does together because we're sharing in the body of Jesus. We're recognizing that as we take the little 
piece of bread and as we take the juice together, as we put that into our bodies, that we're sharing this as one. It gives us an understanding and a physical practice of unity in Christ, in Jesus, what he did. And a lot of times I, I, I worry for myself that I haven't examined myself enough when I come to communion with the church. And so this morning I want to read Psalm 26 verses 2 through 3 over us, which says, Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind. For your faithful love guides me, and I will live by your truth. It's this opening up of the psalmist to God saying, I want you to look inside me and examine me. It's the heart of David as well in Psalm 139 where he, where he says, Lord, I, I need you to examine me. Try me, know my thoughts, see if there's any wicked ways in me, and lead me in your everlasting way. So I want to take a moment here this morning before we share communion, and I'd like us to self-examine. As we musically kind of lead through this time, as the elements are distributed, hang on to them. We'll take them together. But I want us to self-examine. Ask the Lord to go deep into our hearts. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, as Paul is talking about communion, he says, let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. And prior to that, he says, listen, some of you have fallen ill and some of you have died because you've taken communion unrighteously. And people are like, oh, well, there's, you know, there's maybe, there. stop trying to change what the text says. That's exactly what it says. Take this seriously. It matters. And if it matters to the church of the scriptures, it matters to God's church today. Examine yourself. Ask the Lord to search your heart, to know you, to try you and know your thoughts. Ask him to examine your heart and mind. It doesn't have to be done in a begrudging way. Taking communion is a joyful occasion. It's a meal that we share as a church family that Jesus gave to us. But it's also something that we should do very seriously, very contritely, with humble, repentive hearts. So would you bow your heads with me? And I'm going to pray. Lord, as we prepare to take communion this morning, I ask that you would examine our hearts. And as we stay in this place, Lord, some of us may sing. Some of us may um, just keep our heads down, our eyes closed. Some may not. But Lord, there's a freedom here for us to open ourselves up to you, to be examined, and to remember, Jesus, the weight of the cross. Before you went there, you established this meal with your disciples on the night that you were betrayed. And Lord, we just remember you. We remember this unifying meal that you gave to your disciples. We are your disciples. And you gave it to them to share in remembrance of you. And so we want to do the same thing this morning. Help us to understand this in a new depth. Help us to appreciate the bread and the cup this morning. Lord, work in this time, we ask in your name. Amen.